it's great insight. It's great insight. What I think is genius about what you've said there is there's young people out there who might not be able to get onto their next license at the moment, or maybe they are not rushing the process, as you said before, but they can be working on this character development. They can be working on the human side. They can they can go out and, and actually work on that day in, day out, regardless if they're already at a pro club or they're aspiring to be. You know, the coaches out there that want to walk in your kind of footsteps, they can be working on that day to day, wherever they are. The biggest thing that taught me and probably why I stayed in women's football from then all the way through my career was they always wanted to know why. And actually, at that point in my kind of coaching career, I thought coaching was putting on sessions. Although that sounds really simple to me now, back then, all I really knew through my coach education at that point and my experiences was basically facilitating putting on training sessions that I thought looked good, that players enjoyed, but it wasn't coaching. And that, you know, imposter syndrome, you know, it doesn't disappear. You know, I think you always get that at stages in your career and in your life. Anything you do, whether it's coaching or any walk of life, I think it's all about connection relationships. And it's meeting again people at where they're at and where their interests are at, rather than you try to shape and form the discussions that you want as a coach. So you could have a fantastic coach, but if they can't connect with the people that they're working with, it's pointless. So I would always rather go with somebody that might be less qualified, but I've got all those other attributes that you could then help work with and improve. Today's episode, we welcome Kevin Murphy, recruitment lead at Arsenal Women. This is going to be a great conversation. Kevin's career spans two decades, former football development officer, a manager, a coach, technical director, girls academy manager at some major, major clubs in England and Scotland. Also a youth national team coach with the Scotland under-19s team. This is going to be well worth the time of any aspiring coach out there that is thinking how they continue in their journey. And I'm delighted to welcome Kevin here today to the ProPlayer.com podcast. Welcome, Kevin. Delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me on. Kev, I'm going to start. Your, your career is phenomenal. There's many, I hope we get into all of it here today, but there's many people out there listening who will you know, be aspiring to do any one of the roles that you've done in the last two decades. And, you know, it's hard for aspiring coaches to see that pathway forming out. Now that you've been through it and you're kind of still in it, uh, can you remember back to those days when you were starting out and, and maybe the youth national teams and the TD roles at major Premier League clubs and Scottish Premier League clubs were, were in the distance? Can you remember back to those days? I can. It's been a while, as you said. It's been uh, it's been too long, but I do remember it. I remember it as if it was yesterday. So I was starting off at high school. I was 16 years of age, and we had, as part of our, we are doing like a sports leadership course. And as part of that, the school had arranged for uh, the local football development officers to come in and deliver coach education and, and to do our, our level one. 
So um, obviously I loved the game, was playing at the time, not very well, that's how you get into coaching, uh, many say, but uh, yeah, I was playing the game, loved football, obviously, like like most people, and um, yeah, I started this coaching course and, and fell in love with it straight away, and it kind of took me back a little bit, because I didn't expect, you know, I love football, but I didn't think I would love football coaching at, at that age, but I did, and and. I think the development officers at the time saw something in me and after the course was completed, they asked me if I wanted to, to volunteer my time and go into local primary schools and 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 do a little bit of coaching there, and which I did. And that really just led on to one thing or another. I got paid work within the, the local authority and started to work with the local football clubs at Motherwell at the time, Motherwell Football Club, and doing their, their mini steelmen, as it was called. So basically working with three and five-year-olds, which was fun, uh, but also tough. So, uh, so yeah, that started my journey off at the age of 16 and I was fortunate enough to kind of continue my coaching um, alongside university. Um, it was a great opportunity for me to obviously go and do something I enjoy but earn money at the same time, which was great. Um, I also, though, had to sacrifice a lot. I remember doing a lot of shifts that nobody else wanted. So your Friday night slots and your Saturday mornings and your Sunday mornings, I was always the one that would volunteer my time to to go and do that and um, one because I enjoyed it and two because I probably needed the money at the time to be perfectly honest with you but um, you know I learned a lot in those early early years working with more experienced coaches um, and yeah as you said lucky enough that that led me on to, to the career trajectory that I've had to, to date. It's a, it's a great story and probably one that many people will resonate with late 30s early 40s now that time that you know same for me this time we came up you know, the early 2000s where football development was you know, really the bedrock of everything that was going on at the time. Coach education was just becoming, you know, a really prominent thing around the UK in, in, in the different areas of the UK. And really interesting to hear you talk about those people that you work with and the opportunities you gained as a volunteer. And I hope or I want people to understand that that's still probably one of the most powerful things you can do as an aspiring coach, even now today. Do you remember some of those people, you know, those football development officers, those people who helped you get in yourself? You spent almost five years as a football development officer with the Scottish FA yourself. Can you remember those those mentors and those people and maybe some of the things they they, they showed you or you picked up from them just even subconsciously? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was Jim Chapman and Peter Allen, um, two fantastic people and and who gave me that opportunity to to start coaching. So without them, I wouldn't be sat here talking to you today. So it's all about opportunity and those sliding doors moments, aren't they? And grateful for the school to arrange that as well. You know, if they didn't do that, then then I might not be doing the career that I'm doing. So, um, so yeah, I learned a lot from them, their experiences. And and although that I had played football up to that point, I probably never really gave coaching a thought in terms of the process that was involved and the coaches that coached me. You'd probably take it for granted. You just turn up and, uh, you know, you're listening to what the coach has got to say and the exercises that they put on and, and you go and do it and you go home and, at that age, that's probably what you should be doing. But it kind of got me to think a little bit more critically about the game and, and how to work. And you started to um, work with other coaches, like you mentioned. And at that time, it was a lot of ex-professional uh, footballers that turned into coaching and some people my my age as well and some of the experiences. So you learned a little bit from, from everyone, even just how they maybe spoke to the children, how they came across, how it was more fun and entertaining. Um, to then to maybe more of the technical side of the game and, and some of the coaching points that they would make or how they would explain a certain thing 
uh, to the to the children they were working with. So I think you always took little kind of nuggets from from different coaches and different people um, along the way, and then that kind of forms you as a coach. Um, I think it's a bit like baking a cake. You put all those ingredients, you know, together and. And I think that's what forms you as a coach in those formative years. So, so yeah, very fortunate to work with some really experienced people and some really good people along the way. And I think as a person, I'm quite curious. I'm always, you know, open-minded to things and, and I like to be kind of curious about why things are and how it works and why. So I think that kind of naturally led me into the coaching pathway because I was always kind of curious to, okay, well, how does this work and, and how can I make that better? And, if this was good, but how can I then develop that to be something a little bit more challenging for, for the kids that I'm coaching or whatever it may be? So, yeah, so I think that it was a kind of perfect storm for me, working with so many good, knowledgeable people, but also having that personality trait of being curious, wanting to get better, wanting to explore different things, wanting to know the why. Um, I think that kind of put me on the kind of coaching bug and, and why I wanted to learn and, and go through the coach education pathway. And, and clearly you still maintain that level of curiosity today. And, and that's something that I think, you know, aspiring coaches out there who are listening, uh, it is more than just, you know, watching the highlights and the goals and the perhaps the, the interviews with Pep and Klopp, the ones that are on, you know, the radio stations and, and 24-hour news channels. There's there's more to it in, in terms of getting underneath the surface. I think you spoke brilliantly there about like what you saw people do and how you saw them deal with young players and, there's really no substitute is there for hours out there doing it, whether it's a, you know, a lunch canteen in a primary school with a, with a piano in the corner or, or, you know, the wall bars on the wall, as, as we'll all remember, or whether it's, you know, out there two nights a week, just giving you time and, and perfecting your craft, really. I'm laughing at that there because I, I have flashbacks of going into a school, like it's like a badminton court and you've got like 40 children, you know, and you're like 17, 18 and it's like, like crack on, you've got an hour. but. Yeah. In hindsight, you know, that that made you the coach that you are. You, know, you had to think on your feet. You had to adapt. Yeah, and you had to kind of remain calm, you know, on the surface, although you you had the butterflies at the time when these 40 kids are looking back at you going, right, what we're we doing? And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely spot on. And I think for me, I, I still am like that. I'm always curious. And I think we live in a generation now where we can absorb so much more information than ever before. And I think the, the next generation of coaches are very fortunate with that. Uh, you're right that there's obviously these great coaches like Arteta or Guardiola or, you know, these people that you've mentioned, but I don't think you, you should always be humble that you can learn from your mate next to you or within your own club or, you know, the guy or the girl that's coaching in the, the next pitch. I think it's important that you're always open to those ideas and that you can learn from from anyone, uh, regardless of the level that they're operating in. And, Coach education is an interesting one. Like I went through my coach education courses fairly quickly. Um, it was just something that I really enjoyed, you know. So as, as I said to you, I've got a thirst for knowledge. I want to learn. I want to improve. And a lot of people I've listened to a lot of podcasts and I've spoke to a lot of coaches. And a lot of the advice is don't rush through your coach education courses. Take your time, learn your trade, and then go to the next level. And I don't disagree with that necessarily. But I've got a different mindset to that. I've wanted to go through all the courses, not necessarily to, to get the qualification and pass. Of course, that was a byproduct. I wanted to go and do that. But the main aim and ambition for me was to go and learn from the coach tutors, to learn from your cohort that you're with, and to put yourself out of that comfort zone. Because, again, there's nothing worse when you're having to deliver a session and you've got all your peers watching you and 
And I didn't enjoy that, but in some ways I knew it would make me better and I wanted to improve. So I, I went through my coach education journey and pathway fairly quickly, but I don't see that was a race to the top. It was more about me trying to set myself new challenges and to learn you know, these different skills from these different people. So I, I can I take a different view in terms of coach education with, with that. I think if, you know, I know there's a financial element to it as well, but if you've got the ability to uh, to put yourself through those courses and it's going to put you out of your comfort zone and challenge you a little bit, then I think absolutely that's what you should go and do. I couldn't agree more. I think your your my story probably parallel me with the Welsh FA and you in Scotland. You're quite right. Like those environments, you, you crave being in them. I remember you know, just running around, supporting the B licence and the A licence, picking up balls, anything you could do to be in those environments. And at the time, I don't think, we, I certainly didn't understand how lucky we were to be listening in on feedback and, and you know, verifying sessions and coach education sessions, watching presentations from the back of the room and just, like you said, drinking it all, taking it all in. And I think, you know, that's the advice I think you give to any aspiring coaches to find that version of your apprenticeship, if you like, and, and stay in it as long as you can, whatever you know, time or effort it takes to do that, you know, spend that time doing that. So you mentioned there about, uh, you know, your younger self and, and obviously you're still connected very well with that, with that person. There's been a lot of people listening today who are in that space. Uh, it's a, it's a struggle at times, you know, the, the, the end goal can feel miles away. Professional game can feel miles away. People dreaming of working in football like, like you have. When I started this thing, I, I said I would ask the, you know, the pointed questions, like, you know, really important questions. And I feel like, this is one of them. So what would you, what, if you wrote a letter to your 22-year-old self now, having done everything you've done, what kinds of things would you say in it without maybe being too harsh on yourself? What, what advice would you give yourself looking back? Yeah, probably it's a really good question. I think for me, what I'd probably tell myself is like, just keep on the course, a work out. You know, I think, I think everyone, not just in coaching, but I think in life, everyone at that age is really concerned about you know, everyone expects you to have everything figured out, don't they? You know, so you should have your career led now and you should have a trade or you should be, you know, graduating at university at that point or whatever it may be. And you're expected to go on that career path. And obviously for aspiring coaches, that path is very difficult. It's very complicated and it's it's very competitive. So I think for me, it's just have that process in mind where you want to go, but don't be too hard on yourself. You know, take take it in small steps, set some small goals and um, don't look too far ahead um, and kind of break it down into smaller chunks. I think it's important. I think I've mentioned that race to the top before and I think it's very easy to to look at the top end of the game in male or female football and go, I wish I was there. But you have to work back the way and think, well, you know, where am I at just now and where do I want to get to and what do I need to put in place? So can I work from where you're at as opposed to where you want to be, if that makes sense. And 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 understand that setbacks and and delays are all part of the journey. Like I think that's important. Like it's not going to be a linear um journey. It's going to have peaks and troughs. It's going to have its good and its bad points, its highs and its lows. Um and although they can be difficult when they come, I think it's important that you stay on that track and you understand that as part of the journey and that's part of your development and, and to some extent embrace that and, and learn from it and then from that you can then grow and develop further. I want to get into the, the, the early part of your career in Scotland if we can but I think again there'll be a lot of people listening who who really want to go a little further with that and just maybe I can ask you not, not for the specifics of course but maybe a time where you had to deal with 
that level of adversity early on in your career, you know, before you had the resume behind you, before you had this successful track record? Is there an example where you had to deal with that kind of adversity? How did you deal with it? You know, was it a lonely place? Can you remember maybe a couple of those examples? When I first went into women's football, it was 2005. It was with a local team called Hamilton Ackies. They were in the Premier League at the time in women's football. They were like a mid-table team and I kind of fell into the role, to be honest with you. I was kind of helping out and it was, I was meant to be a stopgap. I was there for eight seasons, so it was a, it was a long stopgap. So I was a young coach. I was only my, I was only 20 at the time. And um, you're then having to deal with senior players. And at that time, okay, they were only training maybe two or three times a week. But I had some players that were 35, 36, had played for the national team, had like 60, 70-odd caps for their country. And here's a 20-year-old coach coming in, you know, counting on training. So I think I think a lot of people who suffer from imposter syndrome and it's like, well, you know, am I good enough? Am I doing this right? Um, and I think that was a big learning curve, a, a very steep learning curve. And not just on how you coach, but also how you deal with human beings. Because it was my first experience having obviously dealt with kind of youths before, to then dealing with a senior team and people that were a lot older than you and have done a lot more in the game than, than I had so that, that that don't know if it was a setback but it was certainly a massive challenge and I think you would doubt yourself and you would go home and you would question what you did and why you did it but ultimately what, what it did do it kind of supercharged my development and it, it taught me so many things because I made so many so many mistakes in those first couple of years but it was still a safe space and we kind of grew together, you know, the, the players and, and the coaches uh, at the time that it was like, we'll figure this out together. You know, won't won't get it right all the time, um, but we'll, we'll learn along the way and we kind of started to embrace that as we did. And um, so, yeah, I think for any young coaches out there, I think it's normal to feel that way. It's normal to have self-doubt. Um, it's normal to... Um, Sometimes if people are criticising, if it's parents or if it's players or opposition coaches um, that, that, that are doing that, I think it's natural to doubt yourself. But again, if you can go back to your process and what you're trying to achieve and how you're trying to do it and get back to what you know what drives you and what's your why, then hopefully that keeps you on track. Um, it's important that you filter out noise in this industry. There's a lot of it. Um, some of it can be useful because it can help you, you know, shine a light on some of your blind spots. But it's important the bits that you know, you know, when to turn the volume up and when to turn the volume down. And I think with experience and with time doing that, you get better at doing that uh, through the years for sure. Love that idea of turning the volume up and down. I think that's theory that people can use. They can get good at doing that, I hope, through through time. There's some major podcasts out there who deal with the idea of imposter syndrome superbly well. The High Performance Podcast has done it many, many times. Listen to Patrice Evra talking on there, Fernando Alonso. I would encourage everybody to go and, and listen to those episodes. Also, Diary CEO gets right into that stuff as well. Perhaps with us being a little smaller, we can pivot to maybe your experience. You mentioned the imposter syndrome there. Can you remember maybe how you actually dealing with it in the moment? Like, did was it a thing in as you're coaching? Was it something in the car after? Was it something you reflected on? Did it pop into your your mind during the working week like can you remember maybe you know how it manifested itself for you and how you obviously got over that you mentioned getting through it with the players mm -hmm. but maybe practically yeah. how it how it manifested in your life 
Yeah, I think it was all of that. I think it was sometimes before the session, during the session, and after the session. I, I think at times, you know, it, it would appear you, you don't set an alarm clock and it just turns up, you know, it, it can appear at any point. And that's that's the issue with it, isn't it? It's like you're wrestling with it in your mind all the time. Um, but I think for me, how I, how I overcame it was being vulnerable. You know, I, I feel that I'm pretty good at that, to be honest. I, I'm quite good at opening up and being honest and being authentic. And it's probably one of my strengths. So I almost said that to the players, like, I get it. You know, I'm young, I'm inexperienced. Um, I'm figuring it out myself. I don't know if that's what I'm doing right. I, I need to seek feedback from it, good and bad, and, and develop a thick skin, you know, if you're getting negative criticism, but understanding it's coming from a good place to make you better. And we started to do that. And through engagement with the players, you know, the, the content or the the intensity of the sessions, then you could help develop and tweak that for for other sessions. And I think with that, the feedback gets better in general and your confidence then grows. And then you start to get those doubts become less and less. Um, so, yeah, I think that was probably what I did was just be honest and open up and say, this is how I feel. This is this is where I think that I'm, I'm weak in. And these are some of the things that at that point I had lots of energy. I was really enthusiastic you know, I was going to give everything to the cause and the players that I was working with, I think, could see that. They could see that, you know, I want to do well and I want to help them too. Um, and I think for me, it was just making sure that it was a collaboration between, as I said, myself and, and the players to get through that and figure that out, um, which I think we did. And the biggest thing that taught me and probably why I stayed in women's football from then all the way through my career was they always wanted to know why. You know, why are we doing that? And actually, at that point in my kind of coaching career, I thought coaching was putting on sessions. You know, if I could put on a really good session, it looked good and it felt good and the players enjoyed it, then it was a success. But working with that group of players, and I think it's working with female players, although I don't have a lot of experience working with males to say this is maybe the same, but they want to know the why. You know, why are we doing that? What's the purpose of that? And actually, it made me think more critically as a coach and think, well, actually, if I'm going to do this possession exercise, why am I doing it? And does it have direction? And is there goals there? And is there a counter-press element to it? Or why are we doing it? You know, does it fit well the game on the on the weekend? So although that sounds really simple to me now, back then, all I really knew through my coach education at that point uh, and my experiences was basically facilitating putting on training sessions that I thought looked good, that players enjoyed, but it wasn't coaching, you know, and I think there's a real difference there as well. So so I think with all of that and with that experience and then with that, that communication and feedback and that, you know, imposter syndrome, you know, it doesn't disappear. You know, I think you always get that at stages in your career and in your life, but I do think that it gets turned down a little bit, like we spoke about before, I think. Um, and that just comes with, yeah, confidence and and doing it more and more. That's brilliant. That 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 section's excellent. That's going to help a bunch of people, man. Like there are so many young coaches out there right now who will engage with what you've just said, and it'll put a few back on track, mate. That's brilliant. Great insight. Great insight, Kev. And and I know that's going to help a lot of people, um, especially as they start out in their career. Early on in your career, as we say, we, we're moving from Hamilton Academicals into the Scottish FA and then you get the role with the women's under-19s nine, under national team. Straight, thrown straight away into high performance, you know, international football. Um, you know, you've got to be on it every day there and, and you've got a wide variety of 
roles and responsibilities under the assistant uh, coach title for four years there at the uh, Scottish FA. Can we talk a little bit about how that shaped you and what lessons you learned there? Yeah, I think so. At that point, obviously, I'd been coaching in women's football for for a while then, and then Shelley Kerr, who went on to be the national team coach as well, um, who I class as a, a mentor and a friend as well, and she asked me to to work with under nineteens, and again, it was a great opportunity to go and learn from someone mm-hmm. uh, so experienced and and such a good coach. And what Shelley had taught me as a coach in the time that I worked with her was. As similar to kind of what we were saying before was what do you want out of the game and work back the way? Whereas before as a coach, I kind of started off by right, a facility and put on a coaching session. To then I then thought, right, I'm putting on a coaching session, but what do I want to get out of the session? And then Shayla took it another stage further and said, Well, how do you want the team to look? How do we want to play? What do you want the end product to look like? And actually work back the way and devise your training sessions from that. And that blew my mind, you know, that opened up another gateway and corridor for me to explore and think about and think more critically on and I still work like that probably today you know in coaching sessions that I'll always think of the end in mind and then try to work back from that and break it into smaller chunks to then obviously deliver to players so that was a great opportunity it was a part that was a part-time post I was still coaching at night at Hamilton I would do obviously the camps and the, the championships um, but what that took me was high performance. You know, we had at that point then, you know, video analysis. You would have a little bit on nutrition, strength, conditioning. You were working with a group of players that were all extremely ambitious, obviously all talented to be in the national team, but also ambitious to obviously want to go and progress on their careers. So it was exciting for me because you've then got a captive audience who are really wanting to give their all uh, in every training session um, that are together. So... I learned a lot from that and it was nice because it was obviously then working with a, a younger cohort again to what I was doing previously. So it was a nice kind of break, if you like, from the, the kind of uh, coaching at Hamilton and working with more senior players. So I quite liked the kind of mix of that and, and the contrast of that because it was a bit different at times. So again, I think that challenged me a little bit as a coach. But then also when you're then playing international teams and you're going and you're watching different styles, you know, you're playing Spain or Italy or Germany or, you know, and you're starting to see the game in a different light because they've got characteristics from their culture um, that you see creeping in into the games. And from a tactical point of view, that really accelerated my development because I think at international level, whether it's youth or senior, it becomes a lot more tactical. Um and I thought that was really fascinating for me. And I think that brought me from a tactical element that brought my game as a coach on tremendously. Um, so, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. I'm very fortunate I went to two Euro finals during that time as well, which was which is great because it was eight countries basically competed. So for a nation like Scotland to go and do that was was fantastic. So, so yeah, lots of good memories, lots of good times with that. And again, just from an experience as a coach, you couldn't help but, you know, lap up so much knowledge, whether it be from Shelley or, as I said, from the tactical element of playing all these nations as well. It was it was fantastic for me and for my development. I, I've spoken about Shelley on recent episodes because, you know, in a, in a in some of my former roles, I've been fortunate enough to go and watch her teams play and 
the class that she conducted with herself with and, and the impact she had just from me watching from the stands. I, I, I've always been a huge fan of Shelley. And I know she's done a massive amount for developing coaches in Scotland and continues to play an important role. Before we move on, I want to talk about probably one of the most important parts or facets of, of youth coaching, um, connection, and how you found the best ways to connect with the U19s, International Scotland team players, um, you know, on camps, away from camps, whatever it might have been. You'd, you'd still have been very ahead of the game going back to kind of early 2010s area, pre-2015. It's something we talk about a lot now, um, but back then you'd have been ahead of the game in, in discussing that kind of stuff. So could you talk to us a little bit about how perhaps that was different from connecting with the the senior players at Hamilton Academicals and maybe the win, the winning was more important there. But how did you find it best to connect with these young players, these young female players in the game that was becoming professional at that time or about to explode, as we'll talk about later, sort of post-2015? Yeah, I think um, in some ways it was, it was a similar way that I've always done it. It's just about connections on a human level, isn't it? So it was getting to... I was getting to know them and I think it's actually easier at international camps because you have a lot of downtime. You know, you've got a lot of time where you're in hotel lobbies, you know, there's there's hours of rest in between or they've got some study at that point as well because they're still in education. Um, your training might only be an hour and you might have like a half an hour meeting and in between times you're, you're pretty much eating or resting. So sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds like a, an ideal... There's no resting. For the players, maybe. No, yeah, for players, yeah, but for, for us as coaches, yeah, maybe not. But um, but what that did do, because you had a lot more free time, um, or the players had more free time, it gave you more opportunity to have those conversations. So the informal, I think, is always best. So, you know, if there's a group of three players sitting at a table, you know, on their phones or playing a game or whatever, then it's just a case of sitting down and having a chat with them for five, ten minutes and finding out things, not necessarily about football, but things in life, brothers, sisters, pets, favourite programmes. Uh, used to get lost in me because it was all Love Island and all these sorts of shows. So um, <laughs> I even found myself watching some of these shows for research purposes. <laughs> so you could have conversations so you didn't look stupid yeah, in the yeah. morning when they were all talking about it. So, you know, it's those sorts of things. It's coming at it from a personal level and try to get to what makes them tick, what they are interested in um, sometimes make a fool of yourself you know sometimes I would play the game a little bit and uh, although I was still relatively young to them I'm sure I was ancient um, yeah. so you play along with that a little bit you know with taste and music or you know, what kind of shoes that you're wearing or whatever so yeah so yeah it was just those little things that hopefully builds up a bit of rapport a bit of respect and then when you go into the pitch hopefully your coaching you know commands a little bit of respect for what you're doing and how you deliver it but I like to think that the time that you've spent with them away from the training pitch, it buys you a bit more time and respect as well, you know, because they've got that sort of kind of rapport with them and you've got that connection. But I think it's a, it's a fantastic question. I think that's key to anything you do, whether it's coaching or any walk of life. I think it's all about connection relationships and it's meeting again people at where they're at and where their interests are at rather than you try to shape and form the discussions that you want as a coach. I think sometimes you've got to take that hat off and leave it to one side and because when you have to have those difficult conversations at one point you hope that you've got enough in the bank um, in terms of the relationships and the connections that you've built during that time 
that that message will land because you've got credit in the bank, you know, up until that point, I think that's really important. It's genius what you're saying. It brings me back to sort of parts of my career where I was very fortunate to spend some time, quite a lot of time at St. George's Park in England. And you you had this amalgamation of of conversations and, and meetings going on. And wherever you look, there was a, you know, there was a coach sitting down with a young player, you know, England tracksuit, whatever. There was two people sitting in a more formal space having a coffee. There was, you know, there was all these different interactions going on. And I, I remember early on in my time thinking, there's something in this about how different people communicate in different ways. And I, I was always really conscious of the coaches that kind of came in, sat down, opened their laptop, talked about clips or did something and left. And they, I'm sure they were doing great work, but it was something that resonated with me early on that you had to have the interactions you're talking about as well. You had to show that you weren't just in it to impart knowledge. And, and we know now that, you know, Gen, Gen Z, Generation Alpha, these are the first two generations that don't need adults for information. They just don't need us for information. They can get it on the internet. They can get it in the palm of their hand. That's never been the case before. It, it's going to change if it's not already changed. Everything about coaching interaction, human interaction. I think it's genius what you said there. Okay. You move on from the youth national teams, great grounding, um, you know, wonderful experience there. That's no doubt put you in a great space to move into first team management. Then you move on to Rangers, you know, one of the world's most successful and, and, and famous clubs, certainly, you know, leading the agenda with, with Celtic and, and a couple of others there up in Scotland. How was that experience moving into first team management? I got the phone call from Rangers to say, look, we want to have a you know, full-time coach. Well, I say it was a full-time coach. It was three jobs in one, basically. So it was... To lead the women's team, so be head coach of the women's team, to head up the community programme, so boys and girls across the country. And as you say, Rangers are a huge club, so they've got a massive following. So that was a massive undertaking in itself. And to oversee the academy, uh, the girls' academy at the club. So it was three jobs in one, but it was a full-time job at a huge football club, as you say, an institution like Glasgow Rangers. So, of course, I jumped at the opportunity to go and do it because ultimately that's where I wanted to to be and where I want to make my career. So did that. It was extremely difficult though, eh, just because at that point the club were in a lot of financial difficulty. That's eh, at the time when they get bought over by Charles Green, and so there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of kind of friction, you know, internally and externally, you know, that was going through that. But I think in hindsight, looking back, it's also a really good learning curve for me as well to come out of local authority and working in a professional club and having to see firsthand some of the ramifications that come from that. Um, so I learned a lot in that. Lots of really good people um, that work at that football club as well. Um, and then the job, you know, was probably too big. Well, it was too big because it was, as I said, it was like three jobs in one. So again, learned a lot of good and bad, made lots of mistakes. Um lots of learnings along the way. It was interesting because I, I, for the first time, I probably really took a, a real interest in academies. And although I was doing that at Hamilton, I obviously accelerated that more at Rangers and started to look more about youth development and coach development, which I really loved and a real passion for, um, as well as also try to lead the women's team at that point and then run a community programme. So I was getting to, to the point where it was too much and, so yeah, enjoyed it, learned a lot from it, 
as I said, it was a real turbulent time to be involved in the club, just of where it was at that point. Um, and then I got, I saw the Manchester City job, the, the technical director job, and I'd been at Rangers for a few years, and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to apply for this and see where it where it lands. And was very fortunate to to get the job there. So moved from from Rangers to 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 Manchester, and you know, obviously it was Manchester City, it was a big club, but there was two main reasons for me taking the job. One was that it was um it was one job, you know, although the job was big, it was one focus, which was effectively the academy and looking after the academy. And two, it was to test myself because at that point I'd been coaching in Scotland probably for about 10 years, knew pretty much every player and everything, you know, in terms of Scottish women's football at that point. And I wanted to go and work in England where I didn't know anyone, I didn't know the players, I didn't know, you know, the, the kind of governance and anything like that. It was all completely new to me. So again, it was putting myself out of my comfort zone and, you know, talking about imposter syndrome and all that, it was almost like, am I good enough for this? But hey, I'm going to give it a good go. So, so yeah, fortunate enough to then go to Manchester City then and, and the club at that point went through a really good spell in women's football and were very successful. So I was um, happy to be part of, play a very small part in that, but it was a great time to, to be at the club. I was very fortunate from the England side to see a lot of the stuff that was going on at Man City at that time. And, uh, you know, the, the academy being set up, the, the buildings they were making there around the Etihad and, and the work they were doing from the women's side, you know, for the first team there was was phenomenal. We had a lot of players obviously play for England who came from there as well and um, they kind of led the way during that period. That was probably the period that women's football began to become what it currently is, I, I, would, I would argue, maybe you would agree, um, that before that it was definitely something else and you know, there's so many people who came before, prior 2014-15, who lifted the women's game up and put it, you know, in any chance to be where it is now that we have to nod, nod our head to and thank. But during that time, it was people like you in those roles who really drove it on into the professional era um, in the work you were doing. So, obviously, that's a different role now from what you were doing before, coaching and maybe doing other stuff. Tell us a little bit about perhaps what technical directors are looking for, you know, maybe running programs, especially there's going to be a lot of aspiring coaches listening who want to be employable, want to get roles in professional clubs like, you know, as big as Man City. What advice would you give them? You know, they're dreaming of being hired by someone at you at that time. What would you What would you say to them? Uh, probably follows a similar path to what we've already spoke about. I think it, it goes down to personality than, than anything else for me. I think whenever we were looking to recruit coaches in, it was coaches that, you know, wanted to learn, had a growth mindset, you know, were always you know keen to learn and, and grow within the programme. I think that's important. It wasn't necessarily looking for a ready-made coach, you know, just coming fresh out the packet and away they go. It was, it was you know, people that you could work with, that you could help shape, that would challenge you as well. I think that's really important that you create a culture where if they didn't agree with something or they weren't quite sure on something, that they could challenge that because, again, that helps the 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 program grow and to develop so I think that was really important people that can take feedback I think is really critical because that was something I was really big on like I watched pretty much every training session I went on I would always give coaches feedback positive and negative um and it was important that they they were thinking critically about their sessions and it wasn't just like I said earlier that you just rock up and facilitate a session it had to be the why what was the purpose have the end in mind and work back back the way, all that sort of stuff that we spoke about. So it was getting coaches to think more critically about their sessions, 
to to deliver high levels of technical and tactical information as well. That's age and stage irrelevant uh, relevant as well. I think that's important to stress that you're not trying to treat ten year olds or twelve year olds like many adults. So I think it's appropriate to the, the agent stage that they're working at. But yeah, I think people that are inquisitive, that are humble, that are hardworking, that want to learn, want to improve. Yes, there's a certain level of qualification that's required through criteria. But I don't think for me, you know, where you've got a pro license or you've got, you know, a level two, I don't necessarily think it makes you a better coach. What it does do, what it does do is guarantee a level of competency. Mm. But I think it's all the other stuff that goes around it like I've just mentioned, that probably helps shape you as a coach and how you come across. Because like we spoke about, it's all about relationships. It's all about connection. So you could have a fantastic coach, but if they can't connect with the people that they're working with, it's pointless. So I would always rather go with somebody that might be less qualified, but I've got all those other attributes that you could then help work with and improve. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question or not, but I think for well, me... It does. It does. It's great it. insight. It's great insight. What I think is genius about what you've said there is there's young people out there who might not be able to get onto their next license at the moment, or maybe they are not rushing the process, as you said before, but they can be working on this character development. They can be working on the human side. They can they can go out and, and actually work on that day in, day out, regardless if they're already at a pro club or they're aspiring to be. You know, the coaches out there that want to walk in your kind of footsteps, they can be working on that day-to-day wherever they are. I'm quite strong about this because in my experiences working with so many coaches over different clubs, there's a, a almost like a law that you have to want to work at the top end yeah. of academies. And I've worked with some fantastic coaches who are just brilliant with 10, 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds that are excellent at it, but they've got aspirations to go and work at 18s or 21s. And because there's a, I think within coaching, I think people think, you know, that's almost an indication of how good a coach you are, the higher level that you work. And I honestly can't disagree with that enough. And if there's any young coaches or any coaches that are there listening, my biggest advice would be specialise in an age group or or an age range where it's, you know, foundation phase or the children's phase or the youth phase. And, and become a specialist in that, understand the psychology of children that you're working with, if it's male or female, the differences at certain ages that that can bring. Um, Because, yeah, I, I just feel that a lot of coaches who just want to work through the age groups and they see that almost as like a, you know, a confirmation that they're getting better as a coach. And for me, what I was trying to create in the clubs I worked with was that they became specialists within their own age group so that, they become more knowledgeable in that in that, that age range, um, that they can relate to those children at those ages a lot better. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's really important as well when you're mapping out your journey. Like, don't always think that coaching at eighteens or twenty ones or seniors is better than coaching at twelves or fourteens. You know, I want to get into that with you for sure because uh, much like yourself, early on in my career, I went to Cardiff City and. Guy called Mark Neville was, you know, the head of youth development phase or foundation phase. Sorry, at that time, nine to eleven or seven to eleven. Sorry, um, absolute expert in that age. And I remember just daily thinking, like, wow, you're blowing me away with the concepts you're talking about, the way you're communicating, how the messages are relating to that age group. Um, and I was an assistant under 18s coach at the time, and I, and that was the first time I came across this idea of being expert at, um, you know, an age group. 
so that's that's you know I would encourage anybody listening to to, to seek out Mark and um, on social media and you know I believe he's at the FA now so amazing work that he's still out there doing now. You mentioned there about you know people finding their niche or finding their age group. How does someone go about that process? Is is that something that happens naturally? Do you think like you experience working with different age groups of players or maybe male and female players, and you, you feel more comfortable in one space than another, or is there a particular way of people going around that if they haven't thought about doing that already? Yeah, I think so. I think it may be trial and error for a lot of coaches, so it's it's probably what they enjoy doing most. First and foremost, some people will naturally gravitate to work with younger players because it's more high energy and more enthusiasm. Um, some people like working with older players um, as well. So I think it's, it's figuring out probably what you enjoy the most and and then seeking feedback, whether it be from peers or from other people within your club or organisations that they can give you honest feedback and and and. and you know, be critical at times about how how your sessions are going, and I think it's personality driven too. I think a lot of people, um, depending on if they're energetic, energetic, if they've got loads of energy and charisma, then that might lend themselves to working at younger age groups. If you're maybe more theoretical and maybe more, um, tactical minded, if you like, and they can see different pictures, and maybe you're working at an older age group. And that can change, of course, like coaches can evolve and, and, and change. So I'm not saying that you have to stick to it for forever, but I just feel that some people just look at it from a perspective of I need to get there, but actually their be their best work and they're best suited to working at a certain age group. And I think that's really important. So seek feedback, get feedback on that. Um, but try, as you say, it's trial and error, you know, work within a boys program, a girls program, different age groups and see what you enjoy most, what you get out of it most. But ultimately, I think you'll become a better well-rounded coach in that process too. I think that's an important thing to say because it is, you know, different challenges will get thrown up to you. And if you can experience those different challenges, then it's going to make you a better well-rounded coach in the long run. Um, but of course, it's got to come from a bit where you, you enjoy it because if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to stick at it. So you've got to be comfortable within reason at the age group you want to coach with. Absolutely. And you might not necessarily be doing it for the financial benefit, of course. No, I'm coaching. No, we don't do it to make money, that's for sure. <laughs> I want to get into this a little bit with you as well, a little bit more deeper. So, you know, you've got a situation where people have to take feedback or should take feedback. You've obviously been extremely successful in your career at listening to feedback, taking feedback on board, and then putting that feedback into practice in one form or another. Um, you know, with ego being such a huge thing in, you know, probably, you know, players' mentality, perhaps in the men's game more so than the female game, maybe. But how 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 do how have you managed to successfully navigate that process of getting feedback, not taking it personally, adding it into becoming better? Because clearly, you don't have the career that you've had to date and continue to have unless you're able to do that. There might be some aspiring coaches out there or even leaders out there who you know, immediately as soon as they hear constructive feedback, switch off or, or can't deal with that. How, how would you advise people to maybe look at that in themselves? Again, a great question. I think for me, it probably, again, goes back to my personality. Like we've mentioned before, I'm, I'm inquisitive, I'm a reflector, I want, to, I want to learn and grow and develop. So as part of that process, I naturally seek feedback. And actually, I probably nine times out of ten go and seek feedback before feedback's given, if that makes sense. So 
So I've kind of always done that. Now, don't get me wrong, sometimes it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when your first reaction as a human being is to be defensive, uh, and, I, and and certainly my earlier days, I certainly was, and I would try to justify it. Yeah, but I was doing it because of this, and I thought that went well, or or this happened and that threw me. Or So you're always thinking about excuses. So I think it's been mindful of how you be mindful of that, be in the present and, and think about it. So if you feel that that's starting to come out, Take a deep breath, you know. Listen to what they're saying, um, and and pick out the key the key things. It's never personal. Uh, in my experiences, it's very rarely been a personal thing. It's more that they're being objective with it, and and they're giving you that that feedback, and it's up to you to then go and t- you know disseminate that and and take it for what it is. So I think that's important. I think before you go and seek feedback, though, reflect first. So be hold a mirror up to yourself and say, right, okay, what went well? What am I really happy with? What would I change? What would I do differently next time? And then when you go and seek that feedback again, in my experiences, nine times out of ten, what they're what you're getting back is often what you thought yourself anyway. So the, that takes a little bit of the heat off it, I think, because you can resonate and can um understand where they're coming from with it. And then if you're getting feedback and you don't agree with it, then ask more questions of the person giving feedback. So why did you think that? And what would you recommend next time? Or if the situation arised, you know, tomorrow, how would you deal with that situation? We kind of turn it a little bit on its head and and put the person giving the feedback to give more detail, to give more clarity and more colour to what they're saying. So yeah, they're probably little tips that, that I've taken, but I've, I've always enjoyed feedback. I've always enjoyed getting honest feedback. And yeah, it, it can be hurtful at times. Of course it can. But as long as, again, you can understand, it goes back to that process, the small steps that you want to take to where you want to go and understand that it's not personal and understand that you need those little kind of setbacks in order to get you back on path and to help you improve as well. So, and, and that's how I deliver feedback as well. Like, I think it's important that you always give people an opportunity to speak first. Nine times out of ten, they'll always give you what you've already written down in your notepad, and then you just explore and delve a little bit further with them how that how that works and what they would do differently next time. And you often find that feedback's better received that way. I, w- I want to share this with people listening, just from my own experience, because I think it'll help. When I was younger. And I, I got into coach education quite early. I was, I was very fortunate being the Welsh FA and, you know, delivering coach education courses. And when I started, it was about getting out as much as I knew, trying to prove what I knew and trying to prove that I had the level of knowledge. I think this all resembles in, you know, trying to get a seat at the table. That's definitely a concept for aspiring coaches, I think. And for me, early on, it was about, you know, not, not, not like adversely affecting people's development, but really trying to show, well, look, I know this, so I'm giving you this information. You're absolutely right. As, as, I, got, as I got more experienced in my career, I began to let other people speak first. I, began, I, had, I might have loads of feedback to give them, perhaps in a coach education setting, but I, I, I tailored it. I began to tailor it and only bring about the stuff that was relevant or they didn't already understand. That was perhaps, in essence, when, if I've had any success in my career, it's, it's because of that, not that, that change, which is what you're describing here. So for, yeah. you know, for people who maybe, you know, can learn from that and maybe learn that in their, you know, early on in their career and not wait probably as long as I did to learn that lesson. I hope that helps. Um, there's definitely going to be people who, who, you know, will want to listen to you today on this episode and, and they will be leaders. They will be 
technical directors. They will be running clubs, running programs, running national associations. For them, perhaps, for the people who are in that position of giving the feedback, you touched on it a little, but it's really difficult to have a difficult conversation. Like when you're there as technical director of Manchester City, you have to have some really difficult conversations. How did, how did you approach them? You know, was there any lessons you learned about how maybe you approach those conversations and how do you do that now with your experience? Because you can't avoid it. No, I, I quite enjoyed it, to be honest. I, yeah. I, quite, I quite like that. Um, no, I, again, it goes back to what we spoke about already. It goes back to connections and relationships. So when I first went into Manchester City, I was very conscious that I didn't know the club that well, didn't know the coaches at all, didn't know the players or whatever. So it was almost just the first kind of month, six weeks, was just me watching, you know, yeah. just building relationships, getting to know people, getting them on a personal level and don't cast any judgment, you know, mm. just don't have any biases, just go with your eyes wide open and, and soak as much in as you possibly can. And then before giving feedback, it was important that all coaches had a development plan. So they created their own, what they wanted to work on, what their areas of strengths that they perceived were and where they wanted to kind of improve and, and, and work. So that when I then gave feedback, it was always with the coach development plan in mind. So every time I, I volunteered my thoughts, it was always coming from a place where, well, this is the areas you want to improve on and, and these are some of the observations that I've made and these are maybe some tips that I can then maybe pass on that maybe will help you improve on your next session or your next block of activity. So I always felt that I was always coming it back to their plan about their journey and it also made it very individual because obviously all, all the coaches had different things and different areas that they wanted to work on so I felt that it was always delivered a little bit more by a personal touch because it wasn't just general things that you make obviously you maybe see some general things in, in play that you maybe mention um, towards the end of the feedback session but in general it was always relating back to them and what they wanted and how they wanted to improve um, but also being balanced with it, it's important that you don't, as, as humans, it's quite natural, and I was quite bad at this, that you would just always focus a bit more on the things that went wrong or the things that you think they could improve on. But I got better as I got a bit wiser with it, that it was important that you had to over-egg the stuff that they did really well mm. um, and build up their confidence and self, because it's probably quite nerve-wracking for them at times as well, like, effectively the line managers coming in and critiquing your Absolutely. session you know I, I didn't enjoy people watching my session all the time yeah. so yeah. i think that's important to to remember and, and and have that in the back of your mind so yeah i think for me it was just making sure that it was more personalized it was relating to what they wanted to learn and what they wanted to improve upon uh, and then just take it from there yeah I, I think that's great because you're bringing it back to what they've asked for you're bringing it back to what they've agreed upon. You've almost got this kind of informal contract of this feedback relates to what, you know, you've asked for to be better at. So that's, that's great advice. And I think there's a lot of people out there who will use that. I want to turn the conversation, if I can, a little bit towards the specifically the recruitment side, Kev, if that's okay. There's a lot of people out there who either work in recruitment and nowadays, obviously recruitment departments are very professional and they're, commonplace um but there's a lot of coaches obviously involved especially in north america recruitment is a huge part of you know ncaa college coaching out here for example so you know with those things in mind what do people need to know about recruitment and recruiting good players 
are there things that are really important in the recruitment process that you would staple? What advice would you give to people when talking about recruitment, successful recruitment? Yeah, I obviously think recruitment is vitally important, um, particularly obviously when you're talking about college level or senior football. Um, I think it's changed a lot over the last few years, obviously. It used to be traditional scouting, so it would be people that would physically go to games and watch players and have trusted sources and people that would give them tip-offs of players that would be at a standard. Obviously, now you've got so much more technology and a lot more video and data than ever before. So, again, there's a lot of that goes on now, a lot of video scouting and a lot of data-led scouting as well. So it's certainly changed from, from that perspective. But I think also a lot more clubs or colleges have probably now got more of a a DNA, a framework, a methodology of what their club looks like, how they want to play, you know, on a match day, what their training methods are like. And I think as long as that's communicated properly to those who are doing the recruiting, if it's not the coaches, then I think it's important that they try to align those attributes as best they can to obviously what represents the club in terms of their methodology and their culture of their club. So I think it's becoming a bit more niche with that now. I think years ago it was just, you know, oh, she's a fantastic player or he's a fantastic player, let's get them in. To some extent that still exists. But I think it's getting a bit more nuanced now where they start to look at, okay, well, this player's you know, at a level, but do they have the capabilities that we need in our system and our style of play that fit that criteria? So I think that's getting a little bit more sophisticated with regards to that and with the data. Obviously, I think the younger you go down the age groups, I think it's less important. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the youth age, you know, probably pre-high school, I don't think it's important at all. I think it's just about the basics, you know, um, can they pass the ball, do they dribble, um, you know, they get energy, just that, that those sorts of things. As it gets older, then obviously you're looking a little bit more from a tactical and a technical point of view, as well as obviously the physical side of things but it's it's yeah it fascinates me in the states obviously because the recruitment is so competitive um and you're going to be with those players for a long period of time so the character referencing getting to know them the family that psychosocial element of it is also extremely important um as well as the investment that's getting put in as well so so yeah it's very very it sounds simple in the in the in the pretense, you know, just get the best player into the program. But I think it can be a lot more nuanced than that. I think it's about team dynamics, it's about culture, it's about the style of play. Um, and then if you can, if you've got the resources and, and the capabilities, it's then what does your eyes tell you and what does the data tell you? Um and if they align, then great. And if they don't, then you've got to question one or the other and 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 making sure that you stress test that as much as you can. To, to hopefully minimise the risk of, of recruiting a player who's not at the level or, or not a good fit for your club or organisation. So much to get into on this. You, you've, you've just nailed it in terms of risk. That's really what it is, isn't it? Like, what risk are we taking in terms of bringing this player into our into our environment and is this player going to succeed? Having sat in the space as a, as a college coach here in the States a couple of times in different roles, it's very difficult in the recruiting process through the official visits and the unofficial visit system governed by the NCAA to actually get to know the players and their families. And those times are so important. 
there'll be college coaches listening. There'll definitely be aspiring players listening, um, you know, going through that recruiting process themselves. How important do you think it is for, let's get really into what it comes down to. How important do you think this idea of bigger, faster, stronger can, can ultimately overcome everything? You know, if I'm, if I'm bigger, faster, stronger than my opposition, I can probably, everyone can understand how that can be successful. Let's get into this. Bigger, faster, stronger. Is that what recruiting is? Just getting bigger, faster, stronger players and off you go? What needs to be said around this idea of bigger, faster, stronger? If that was the case, Messi wouldn't make it, would he? Or Bon Mate Barcelona as well wouldn't make it. Um, listen, I think it's important. I think the game, if I, if I look at women's football, it is getting quicker, it is getting faster. The, the intensity of the actions uh, is getting greater. So everything is... You know, they're getting more athletic and so you can get away that athletic ability is so important but so is tactical now and knowledge and understanding the game making good decisions at the right time that for me what makes a, a professional player or an extremely good player is that those who make the right decisions most most of the times so there's a tactical IQ element to it and then obviously they have to have the ability of passing the ball and dribbling and taking people on and timing tackles or whatever it may be. So it's not as simple as that. No, I think if it was, then you would just go to the local athletics club and, and sign the, you know, the fastest, the fastest player on the track and, and that would be you. So no, it's a lot more complicated uh, than that. But I also think it relates again to your style of play. Like if you're a team that's, you know, high press and high energy, then of course there's an element of that that needed. But probably there's going to be a point where you want someone to put their foot in the ball and calm the calm the game down, control the tempo of the game, and 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 be smart. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bigger, faster, or stronger. It might mean that they're smarter, um, and more technically proficient than, than those around them. So it's a team game for a reason. I think you need a mixture of all those sorts of players with all different attributes to your game. And what that does is it also equips the coach to then have more, um. You know, armory uh, at their disposal that if they need to go nullify a, an opponent's strengths because they've got certain players that can help do that, uh, or change a game, it's formations or 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 how they how they go and play, then you're going to have to have a mix of different skill sets and and individuals within that. So I think it's important when you do recruit, you don't recruit all the same prototype because ultimately then it's a one size fits all approach, um, and then it limits the coach. To what they can do in game, um, and obviously, then if they need to change, then it becomes really difficult if they don't have that variation um, at their disposal. Can we? There's maybe an opportunity for us here to to help advise uh, some parents who might be listening, or certainly some younger players, in in terms of this idea around growth and maturation. So, late developers, people in the women's game, especially who perhaps can't push back at you know 13, 14, 15, and maybe you know, maybe even younger than that. And maybe they're going through some tough times because, they, you know, there's this whole idea around, well, I can't compete like I used to when I was, you know, foundation A7 to 11 or whatever. What advice would you give to those players, you know, considering the growth and maturation element to the parents perhaps? Uh, you know, it's changed. They, they used to be flying and doing everything at seven, eight, nine years old. And now we've got to go through this process. And, and maybe not everyone understands that going through it the first time. What advice would you give to those people? I think first of all, understand the process like you've mentioned, like understand that when players are going through puberty and, and growth spurts, that 
their their technical ability might not be as good. They might be a little bit more clumsy and trip over the ball a little bit more, and they might lose a yard of pace. Like that's all natural. And I think if you're working at a a good organisation with well informed people, they can track that. You know, and there's mm-hmm. there's there's easy methods of doing that now. That's not expensive uh, to track. And we certainly did that. At all the clubs that I've worked with. And there's a great example of that. We had a, I won't obviously mention the player's name, but at Man City, we had a player who at under 12s was absolutely phenomenal. Um, was doing really well at that young age, had a lots of ability. And then at, at the age of kind of 14, our, our form really dipped. And just like I explained, like she was tripping over the ball. She couldn't, you know, pass five yards. And we obviously have these player reviews a lot and, our mum was really worried at the in the meeting and I asked her, I said, what, what are you worried about? And she went, oh, I, I know my daughter's not doing as well now and I'm scared she'll get released. And and I said, no, 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 we won't do that. And I, I opened my laptop with my Excel spreadsheet and it basically showed that our daughter was going through her peak height velocity. She was obviously going through our, our, our massive growth spurt. And we knew that that was a phase that she was going through. And the relief that you saw in the parent's face but also that she had no knowledge or understanding that that's what happens when, you know, you're going through, you know, maturation. Um, and that player has now went on and played, you know, for England, seen, eh, not senior level, sorry, yet, but for the youth team, she's played all the way through. Uh, I think she might have even played in the first team once or twice eh, now. So it's a great example of as long as you have the information in front of you, as long as you understand that that's a process and that everyone will develop at different rates. Everyone will go through the growth spot at different rates. Everyone will, you know, grow and develop um, a different a different rate from, from their peers. So it's understanding that. And I think for people that are in positions within talent development, I think it's getting better. I think the information is getting better. But those people should have an understanding of that and should be educating the parents and the players within that process too. I think that's vitally important. And it is a phase, you know, so it's not going to last forever. So they will come out of that phase on, on the other side uh, and they will reach their potential, whatever that may be. But they will reach their potential uh, at the end of that as well. So it's important to bear that in mind. That's great advice. And that's something I think is a challenge that we can lay down for all youth soccer clubs across North America, across the world, you know, wherever you are, you know, parents can ask, you know, what, what is your policy? What is your strategy of dealing with growth and maturation? Can you tell us about that? And that's maybe something they can ask before before joining or deciding on where they should play their soccer. Um, you mentioned their peak height velocity. For, for, for maybe some listeners who don't know, you know, what that is, could you give us a quick, quick whistle stop on, on that? Yeah, so so basically what, what we would do within... Um, an academy and again I'm not a sports scientist or a physio so it's not my area of expertise but I'll, I'll explain it roughly to how I understand it um, so we would we would basically take a kid's height and weight every what we did was every quarter so kind of every 8 to 12 weeks we would do that um, seated height so basically sitting on a, a chair and taking their, their height as well as standing height as well as their weight and then we would also take their biological parents height you put that into a spreadsheet which you can get um forget the name of it now camus roach method i think it's called i'm showing off now aren't i with these names but uh, i don't know if you know that but if that's what it is but camus roach methods which you can get a uh, pretty much free online 
put that through and it'll give you what's expected. In female players, it's more accurate than males, actually. So I think it's within a few percentage um, of accuracy. So anyway, so it, it can tell you what a predicted height for this player may be. Mm. And then when you're doing those regular check-ins um, and obviously maintaining that their height, that'll give you a, a, a reading of when they're going through their, their peak height velocity, basically when they're going through their biggest growth spurt at that time. When they go through their biggest growth spurt, that's when they're at more increased risk of injury. Um, that's when, as I said to you before, that's maybe when their technique might go, their running, their running technique, technique might suffer. It's when a lot of players will maybe suffer from growth-related injuries. So it's important yeah. then you monitor their training load. They might not train as much if they're, if they're getting those growth-related symptoms. So you maybe, you know, down downplay some of their training intensity. They can still train, but maybe do a bit less volume, uh, etc. So you manage that during that time. And then when they come out of their peak height velocity and they went through that major growth spurt, you can start to then upload their, their training volume and their training intensity again. And that's really just to maximise the time on their pitch so they're not because what used to happen was that players we didn't have an understanding of this players would just train they would then get you know osgood slatters or other growth related uh, injuries and then the the kind of advice was rest for eight weeks or whatever it would be and then what would happen is you've got eight weeks of development that they can't then go and practice and do it yeah. ultimately their mental health would suffer as well because they're then not exercising they're not being there with their peers and all that sort of stuff so yeah, lots lots of different things. So I think me- making sure that you you're constantly monitoring and measuring that helps impact on making better informed decisions for people in talent development positions that can then go and help players maximise their development, maximise the time on their pitch, keep them healthy, which is the most important thing, and making sure you're not making rash decisions based on what you've seen the last three or four weeks and not what you've seen the last three or four years. Yeah, we had um, Gareth Southgate talking about recency bias recently while selecting the men's England squad. And that's basically what you're saying there, isn't it? About, well, I'm seeing this dip in form at the moment, so that must mean the player isn't as talented and then they get moved down a team or whatever it is in, in North America or released from a programme in the professional. Do you, do, you know what was, do you know what was a big thing for me when we used to do the 12 weekly reviews? Coaches would absolutely just go off of what happened two or three weeks previous. Mm-hmm. So we had to make sure that they marked every week, you know, just a simple few lines of what the players were doing. And it was quite astounding a lot of times. So a coach might say, oh, you know, she's not been great for a while and you know, that's that the next thing. But then when they check back their notes, you know, they would realise, well, actually, over the last three months, they've performed at actually quite a high level. It's maybe just in the last few weeks. And that sometimes coincides with they know that the players know that the player reviews are coming up. So they might have a little bit more apprehension or they might be hitting exam time or there might be something happening in the family or there's so many different other facets. And I think that's again, goes back to connection and knowing, you know, the person and and what they're going through at that time. But it's also coaches being mindful that they're not just going off of memory um, and that they're actually jotting things down, whether it be on a notepad or whether it be on, you know, a, a spreadsheet or whatever. But I think that's really important. Um, as well, because I found that happened quite a lot. And when we're making these big informed choices, we've got to make sure that we've got as much evidence um, as we can and we're taking it as a an accurate snapshot as opposed to just something that's emotional or, or reactionary over the last couple of weeks. 
phenomenal insight. Um, I know there's a lot of people listening to this who will be who will be scribbling away and writing down and 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 really trying to take things away to to benefit their own careers and, and their playing careers or coaching careers or, or leadership positions, whatever it is. That was the whole point uh, of the podcast in the first place. So that's great. As we turn it, maybe more kept to how um, life is changing. Professional life is changing. Obviously, post the pandemic, uh, we learned a lot of lessons during that time as well. How is how is working in professional football changing? Do you think? How has it changed for you? Um, you know, are there any things that we're doing now? Perhaps we wouldn't even have dreamed of, uh, even even you know, four or five years ago. Uh, never mind when you first started. Um, and how have you found? How do you find the day to day? rigors of actually working in professional football because there'll be a lot of people out there who want to do the same thing or or, or are doing the same thing yeah I, I think i'll be really honest and say that i feel miserably with you know work-life balance i think that this industry's pretty bad for that if i'm being honest like the amount of hours that you put in a lot of hidden hours as well it's not just time on pitch um you take a lot of problems with you at home you know so um, you can't just switch off from it I don't think if you're invested in it it's something that's always playing on your mind and you're not always although you might not be at the training the training centre or the training pitch and you might be at home your mind's somewhere else isn't it so I think for me you know I invested a lot of time and effort into work and I do it because I love it and I enjoy it Um, and I still felt that I had energy and I was young enough to obviously put that energy into it but I think over over the time, as you get older and as you reflect on things, I think you then start to realise that you got that balance wrong. And I think it's about working smarter, not harder. Like, I think we've got this, you know, mantra now in football that, you know, being the first one in and the last one out, that's brilliant. You know, look how hard you're working or, you know, I've, I've been, people have commented on me like, oh, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night and you're still in, that's great. And I'm thinking... And at the time, I used to think, yeah, look at me, you know, I'm working so hard. But <laughs> as you get older and you start to realise, it's like, well, that was just stupid, you know, like, I, I should be working smarter, I should be managing my time better, I should be prioritising family time more than I should be being in the office at 10 o'clock at night. So I think COVID taught me a lot of lessons. That was probably my moment, you know, when everything was in lockdown and the whole world seemed to stop and pause. Um, that probably gave me a lot of time to reflect on where I was because at that point I had what probably I don't know 16, 17, 18 years of coaching but it's not just that it was like that's probably I don't know if you put an hour on it, it's probably 50 hours a week isn't it like at least at, so, least. at least so that's yeah. a lot of time it's a lot of effort it's a lot of energy Um, and I love coaching I still love coaching although I don't coach actively now but I just thought, you know what, there must be more to life than than this. So COVID taught me that and it got me to reflect a little bit on what I want to do and where I want to go. And I was very, very fortunate that this job that I'm in just now, that Arsenal had approached me and said, would you be interested in doing recruitment? And obviously you do recruitment in the jobs that I've done previously, but hadn't done it as a sole focus. And during COVID, I'd done a lot of talent ID courses, so started to find myself more interested in that space. Um, and Arsenal were fantastic with me and it allowed me to work predominantly from home and obviously travel to London as a win is required. So I've been very fortunate that I've stepped away from the coaching side of things and and yes, okay, recruitment is, is hard work too and there's a lot of work involved in it. It's very different um, to coaching, 
but I've managed to get a better work-life balance to myself and I think how I feel physically and mentally is a lot better than I was. So I think any anyone listening to this who's coaching, who's doing far too many hours, take a breath, take a step back, look at it and say, like, am I doing everything, you know, as smart as I can? So, you know, don't just wear a badge of honour that you've done 50 hours that week and that makes you, you know, better than anyone else. Mm. Have a thinking, actually, am I being a good partner? Am I being a good, you know, brother, sister, mm. whatever it is? You know, I, I'm, am I being the best person myself as a human being? Um, and if you're not, then I think you need to address that balance a little bit and maybe you have to sacrifice some of the stuff from work to make do with your personal life. That's just my personal thoughts on it. Some yeah. people might disagree with that, but... For me, you don't want to look back when you're 50, 60 years of age and think, you know what, I've just wasted 20, 30 years of my life. Uh, not wasted, that's the wrong term, but you've gave 20, 30 years of your life to to a certain industry, but you've missed out on so many other things that you can't get back in your personal life. Um, and you don't think like that when you're 19, 20, 21. That's probably just the benefit of hindsight and a little bit older and you've lived through a, a few different things uh, that have happened and then you start to reflect and think, you know what, I should have been present there, I should have, you know, birthdays that you've missed and all that sort of stuff, all the usual stuff. And you think, you know what, yes, you know, I've achieved a lot within football and I'm very grateful for that. But there's other things in my personal life that I probably haven't achieved or haven't got what I wanted. And um, yeah, I think that that makes you kind of, ease with things because you think you know what I want to I want to get those things as well I want to achieve those things in my private life so mm. having that balance is so so important and also if you're more refreshed you give a better version of yourself on the training pitch don't you yeah. I think yeah. that's the other thing like there's many, many coaching sessions I've been at that I'm so tired so exhausted that probably was a 5 out of 10 you know, and I think, I wonder if I actually work smarter, that I would be more enthused, more energetic and could deliver an 8 out of 10 session, you know, and be better for the players that I'm serving um, to do that. So, yeah, I think that's a, a real important one for me and something in coaching that we need to address a, a lot more because I don't think it's a healthy environment we've got in that kind of coaching circle and something to improve on for sure. Again, great insight. Great insight for aspiring coaches, people on their journey, starting their journey, even in the game right now, who don't haven't taken stock and, and thought like that. We, you know, I, we don't think that way, or we haven't thought that way. And I'm glad, I'm glad we are now. It's great to hear ex-professional footballers talking about, you know, when they when they came home and lost, and they, you know, didn't speak to the family for five days. Now they're thinking, oh, that might have been a mistake a little bit. It's great now that in 2023 we're hearing them come on the on the radio and the, on the TV and saying those things. We're we're definitely shifting. Whether we need to shift away from the obsession, I don't know. I don't think that's the case. You have to be obsessed with this game. You have to put the hours in. When I, Again, when I started this thing, I promised I would ask the questions and make the points that people would be saying in their minds, listening you know, listening back. Well, you haven't said this or you haven't said that. And it's, it's not easy, but it is different for you and I at this point of our career to look back and have a better balance and a better understanding. We, we probably couldn't have done that at 19, 20 when... You know, you're at Hamilton Academicals and you're working all the hours. You're not saying don't put the hours in. You're not saying don't work hard. You're just saying start your career with this in mind. Even if you haven't achieved all the things that, that you've achieved, Kev, at this point, start thinking about the balance. And you can still be successful 
and you'll probably be better off in the long run if you start your career that that's that's really what you're saying isn't it yeah it is and i think you said about obsession i would say it's a healthy obsession that that, that you need to be healthy in there because i think any obsession can right. can be a bad thing so it's you know it's a healthy obsession you've got to put the others in a hundred percent but i also think that it's important that yeah you, you you make time for yourself and you make time for people that you care about uh, as well. And and that balance can be difficult at times. And sometimes it won't be the perfect balance. That's the other thing I would say. Sometimes it could be 80-20 towards work. But at some point within the near future, you've got to get those scales a little bit tipped over the other way. And as long as you're doing that at times and you're taking enough time out during a season or off season and to recharge, I think it's so important. Um, so yeah, you're right. I, I didn't think like that. But I think if I was doing it again, based on what I know now, I certainly would take a little bit of a step back at times and making sure that I, yeah, I enjoy those moments at times and making sure that because you can't get those back. So yeah, it's just finding that balance. But you're right, you've got to got to be dedicated to what you do, but just try to get that fine that fine line in between. That I think is really important. Kev, this has been a phenomenal conversation, and I know will have helped a lot of people. And as we sign off, you know, I really want to kind of talk to the people out there who might be struggling a little bit or maybe they're not quite where they want to be they have aspirations to be at any of the clubs or do any of the jobs that you've done and and, they, and it just seems so far away from right now or maybe they were getting some momentum and they've been knocked back with a setback as often happens in this game if you could talk to them what would you say to them based on your experience and obviously what you're doing now how would you how would you advise those people I think for me don't undervalue yourself and what you're what you're given just now because what I used to say in coach education courses was we all remember if I say to you who was your favourite teacher at school you'll know straight away and why they were favourite teacher and conversely who was it you hated who was the teacher that you hated the most who you, you dreaded going to class and people going to the, your football sessions that you're delivering will have the exact same thoughts when they're 30, 40, 50 years of age, they'll look back at their time in your training sessions when you were delivering the sessions and going, you know what, I love those times. They were so good, you know, they were so fun. And and I think for me, sometimes we get too caught up on where we want to get to, like we spoke before. But don't forget, like, the impact that you're making just now is more than enough. It's more than enough. And if you're working at a professional level and you're going to work at a professional level, brilliant, fantastic. But the reality is, a bit like football players, you won't you won't all make it to professional level. You won't all make it as a full time career, and I think that should be okay. But what you, everyone's doing, hopefully everyone listening to this as a coach, you'll be impacting on young people's lives. You know, you'll be making them hopefully give them that bit of joy in the week. You'll be hopefully teaching them some life skills and life lessons, as well as keeping them physically active and healthy. So, it's it's more than football, isn't it? It's more than just a a career or a vacation. I think it's it's something that has a massive impact on society and 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 shapes people's futures without being too dramatic about it. It shapes people's futures and careers. And uh, so yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. It's a bit deep and meaningful, but I think it's so important that sometimes as coaches we we are so hepped up in our own career, but we forget that we're having a massive impact on the people, the young people that we're coaching the here and now. And 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 that's that's that that's more than enough. Um, as well so yeah that's how I would like to finish and, and ha have a reminder for coaches that are out there doing that great work out there just now 
Absolutely brilliant. Can't thank you enough. Kevin Murphy, recruitment lead, Arsenal women. Unbelievable time spent with us. Thank you so much for your time, Kev. That's yeah. great, mate. It's really good. I'm looking forward to listening to, to the other guests as well because uh, I think you've got an act for it as well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to others. Maybe not me, but I'm looking forward. I'll be great, and, mate. I'll go, the do- I'll go and let the dog out now. He'll be sitting with his legs crossed. I can, I can tell my wife and I'll come back. It's all right. You can come back to your house. <laughs> Right, nice meeting you, mate. Take care. Thanks, Matt. Stay in touch, mate. Cheers, Kev. You too. Bye, Bye, mate. Bye-bye.